she was clearly very angry with me and she sat me down and she demanded, she said, show me your arms. And very reluctantly, I, I pulled up my sleeves and she says, what's happened here? You know, I tried making something up, but it was clear what had happened. And she was just so angry with me and treated me like I was an annoyance, really. To understand the psychology of self-injury, it's incredibly important that we hear the stories of those who have lived with it. Every story is different and every story can teach us how to better respond to those who engage in the behavior. It is for this reason that every once in a while on this podcast, we feature someone with lived experience of non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short. We don't just focus on the struggle, but are always intentional in highlighting movement towards recovery and how those with lived experience are not defined by the behavior, but can use their history of self-injury for something more, something greater than the behavior itself. With this in mind, today, all the way from New Zealand, I am joined by Dr. Kirsty Moore. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISS. Dr. Kirsty Moore began her career in the academic and research world at Victoria University of Wellington. She then worked for a mental health organization, leading workshops and training sessions on self-injury for different groups of people who deal with this on a regular basis. She is now a speaker, coach, trainer, and general spreader of hope, combining academic knowledge and personal experience to educate people about non-suicidal self-injury. Thank you, Kirsty, for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I've been inspired by your story of lived experience of non-suicidal self-injury. You had shared it with me, and I know you presented at IISS and shared your experience. I wanted to interview you about your experience, and to start things off, it's usually easy for people to get a better understanding of your experience by just sharing in general what it was that was considered non-suicidal self-injury. So using general terms, what was it that you did that was a form of self-injury? Yep. So for me, it was cutting And mostly, yeah, forearms in general. When did you first start cutting? I was 14 when I first started. And it's an interesting story. It wasn't that I was distressed or upset the first time. I wasn't feeling unhappy or anything. I had actually never heard of it. I didn't know anyone who had done this before. I was literally sitting in my bedroom and I had an art case. It was pretty cool in the 90s. It had lots of colored pencils and art supplies, all sorts of stuff. And it had this tiny little craft knife. It was literally just boredom and curiosity. I picked it up and I thought, hey, I wonder how sharp this is. And I I cut my leg and it bled and I saw it and I thought, okay, you know, that's that's a thing. And I maybe did it a couple more times. Again, there was no emotion or anything. It was just kind of a thing I did. And then I think maybe a few days later, I was in my room again and I thought, hey, that was something I did. I'll do it again. And I don't know what happened. I'm sure there was, you know, some brain chemistry going on, whatever it was, there was a reward happening. You know, the visual for me, it was some kind of reward. Over time, I don't really remember the process, but it did become my go-to. And during my teenage years, I was 
yeah, experiencing some depression and anxiety and I was a high achiever. I put a lot of pressure on myself. And so over time, that became my go-to to make me feel better. So an interesting way of, of starting, but it quickly morphed into my only coping method. So it started as a discovery, just trying something new, yeah. turned into something more as a way to cope with emotions later on. It didn't start that way. Yeah, exactly. It was just boredom and curiosity. We mentioned looking at it and saying, well, that's something. And you also mentioned the blood. And I know this is a little bit more of a sensitive topic. And for some people, there is a role of the sight of blood in the self-injury. Was that an important aspect of the behavior for you? Yeah. Yeah, it was. I was very visual. So yeah, drawing that line and seeing the blood in some way was some kind of release for me. So yeah, exactly. Different than just the wound itself. Yes. How long did this go on for? A long time. I mean, and it was on and off. Sometimes it was a daily thing. Sometimes it would be months without it. But on and off in total, I was self-injuring for about 20 years. Early to mid-30s then? Yes. At what point did people find out? The first time someone found out was very, very early on. So when I was 14 and I had, you know, just started and there were a few cuts on the back of my hand, just small ones. And my science teacher saw them and I didn't know, but she reported me to my school dean. And so one day I was, a note came to my classroom to say, go to the office, you have a meeting. And so for me, I was, you know, a high achiever, a perfectionist, very, very good student. So I had never had a meeting in the office. So I was quite nervous. And I walked in, I had never even met the dean and she was clearly very angry with me. And she sat me down and she demanded, she said, show me your arms. And very reluctantly, I, I pulled up my sleeves and she says, what's happened here? You know, I tried making something up, but it was clear what had happened. And she was just so angry with me and treated me like I was an annoyance, really. And she was like, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call your mum you're in trouble for this. And I just, I freaked out. I said, please don't call my mom. I, I know that this is wrong. I'm going to be in trouble. I can't handle being in trouble. And she kind of ummed and ahed about it for a while. And she said, okay, well, I won't call your mom, but you can keep doing this, but you have to keep it a secret because you're really upsetting people. And I said, yep, that's fine. Just let me out of here. I'm off. And so that was the first time anyone had had a conversation with me about it or given me advice. And that's how that went. Wow. How did 14-year-old you interpret that response that you mentioned anger, upsetting other people, keep it a secret? Yeah. How did you interpret that as a teenager? I, yeah, I, I thought of it as a really close call. Like I've stuffed up and it was a relief when she said, I'm not going to call your mom, just keep it a secret. And I thought, okay, great. I can do that. And so 14-year-old me did exactly what she said. I carried on doing it and I kept it secret. And I was able to keep it a secret for another two years. And who found out about it two years later? I think that was another, another teacher. And then I was referred to the school nurse. So the school nurse came in and she said, not a lot. And she said, you know, you're going to have to do this test, which I didn't know was the Beck Depression Inventory. So I filled out, you know, multi-choice boxes or whatever it was. And she said, you've scored very highly. And me being an overachiever thought, of course I did. I did. I'm great. So she didn't really explain it at all. And she said, you know, everything you say is confidential here. You know, you've scored very highly on this. You will have to go to counseling. 
So at this point, I was freaking out a little bit. I just really was worried about the loss of control. So until then, I felt like I had a lot of control over it. I was making decisions and I thought, okay, people are going to try and stop me. They're going to make decisions for me. And then when I got home, I got a phone call from my mum who was distraught. And she said, the school nurses just called me and told me everything. And at that point, it just came crashing down. I just, I felt like that session had been confidential. She had assured me she wouldn't tell anyone. Yeah, I felt betrayed. I felt everything was out of my control. So that was, that was a hard time. Wow. And I imagine there were some misunderstandings that these individuals had, or I guess these school leaders had. What misunderstandings do you, looking back, do you see that they had? And then what other misunderstandings might you have experienced since then? Yeah, the first one, I really, in my head, looking back, I like to believe that the dean interpreted my behavior as attention seeking in a negative light. And by telling me to do it, but keep it a secret, that would stop me. That's the way I I tend to think of her just having a misunderstanding and her having good intentions. I think it's the best way to look back on it. The school nurse, I feel like, yes, she probably did need to tell my parents, but it was that lack of transparency and her telling me everything was confidential and then telling my mother, not ideal. So looking back, it would have been great if she had let me in on the process and made me feel more in control. Since that, I mean, it's been a long journey and I have often tried, I often tried counseling and therapy, even telephone counseling and yeah, a lot of misunderstandings. I've had people immediately say, who hurt you? Or say that to my boyfriend, what did you do to her? I've had, oh, you study psychology. You should know the answer to this. You should be able to help yourself. I've had, when I called a a telephone line and said, you know, I'm triggered, I want to self-injure, her response was, how long have you been suicidal? Mm. So a few misunderstandings along the way, for sure. For listeners, can you clarify that last comment that the crisis counselor on the phone had mentioned, like, are you suicidal? Why do you think she asked you that? For sure. I think she heard me saying, I want to hurt myself, making the assumption that it was suicide intent, where for me, I was on a different page. I was wanting to self-injure to cope. I wasn't feeling suicidal at all at that time. So I felt that there was just a disconnect in what she was hearing and what I was saying. Yeah, there is a common misunderstanding that anyone who engages in non-suicidal self-injury is considering suicide. And that's one of of the most common myths. But we we know that self-injury is a risk factor, a strong risk Mm. factor for suicidal thoughts and behaviors. But not everyone who self-injures has suicidal thoughts and not everyone who has suicidal thoughts self-injures. So I think that has been a common misunderstanding. And it was even back then and still is today, I think. Yeah. Well, you mentioned having a boyfriend and people asking, did he do this to you? What was his response? I imagine then he found out that you had been self-injuring. What was his response? Yeah, so I started when I was 14 and then I had my first boyfriend when I was 16. So I think he might have already known or had seen. I mean, he was 16 as well. So we were learning together and he went through a different range of emotions and reactions. I think one of his first was, thinking, you know, this behavior is part of you. It's who you are. So I love you. And I love this behavior, just loving all of it, kind of encouraging it because that's who I am. Hmm. Then he would flip to, if you do it to yourself, I'll cut myself and then you'll know how it feels. So those are the, the two main ones that he flipped between. 
but I mean, he was 16 as well. It was hard for him to understand and to, to support me as best he could. Yeah, I wonder how other 16-year-olds could respond because I don't think your situation is unique at all. I mean, I hear stories very often about similar circumstances and wondering how they should respond in those cases. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it's so hard even for adults to be support people and to see someone you love doing this at such a young age, it's so much responsibility and it's, it's often paired with please don't tell anyone. And holding that responsibility of this person might hurt themselves. So at a, at a young age or any age, I would suggest bringing in more support and not being the only one that knows and not feeling helpless. So bringing in a trusted adult, a therapist, a counselor, just bring in a team and don't be the only one. That's great advice. Yeah, I think about those cases in which the boyfriend or girlfriend might feel like they're tattling on their significant other. And what I tell them is there's a difference between tattling and telling. Tattling is to get the other person in trouble. Telling is to get them help and support. You had also mentioned that they request promise of secrecy, that they not tell an adult, that they not tell anyone in the context of the relationship. With your self-injury, is that a request that you had made? Yeah. Yeah. So based on experience and I, I just kind of knew that I was doing something wrong and I was just so worried about getting into trouble, but I was also scared of people stopping me and taking that power away from me and the ability to make decisions and to have that freedom. You know, I knew if, if anyone found out it wouldn't be a positive thing. And so I kept it as secret as possible. And you had mentioned that you had sought help, school counselor, the telephone, crisis counselor, and other therapy. At what point did you make the conscious decision for yourself that, hey, I would like to seek help with this. I want to be able to stop this. Or if you didn't seek help, what did you do? It's a funny story. I had tried counseling either voluntarily or involuntary at school, and I'd tried many, and it had never gone well for me. I never really felt heard or understood. And so by this point, I had actually given up on counseling, given up on therapy. And I just thought that's not for me. This is not going to work. I'll just have to rely on willpower. You know, I'm an adult now. I shouldn't be doing this anymore. I'll just stop. And I couldn't. And so I got to a particularly rough patch. I was at a very, very low point. And a, a trusted friend said, I know a counselor. Do you want me to get him to call you? And at this point, I just didn't care. I said, you know, whatever, I don't care anymore. And so this counselor called me and he said, I, I've heard you want to have a conversation. And I said, absolutely not. I really don't. I don't want to talk to you. But so luckily he persisted. He just talked to me on the phone. And within about 10 minutes, I was broken. I was just crying and for the first time felt heard and understood. I don't know what he did. And I, I went on to have counseling with him. So he was a counselor and in a very, very short space of time, I don't know how he did it, but in a short space of time, he really cut to the, the underlying issues and some really faulty thinking patterns that I had. Interestingly, we didn't really talk about the self-injury at all. We talked about everything that was underlying. The self-injury, I think, was just a symptom, a coping method, and it's not something we talked about a lot. That's an important point. I'm thinking about parents who they want their kid to talk all about the self-injury in session to stop it. And they may have different goals. I mean, I often say none of us is very good at accomplishing the goals that other people have for us. But sometimes the focus doesn't even have to be 
on the behavior. Sometimes it's the underlying function of the behavior or whatever it was that you talked about and your therapist did. So just thinking about that, what was it about this therapist that was really helpful for you? That would be amazing if I could answer it. <laughs> it was just, I don't know what modality he was using or what approach, but he it was very fast. He was really able to get to the underlying the underlying stuff that had been sitting there for so long and to rejig those thought processes, those thoughts that I had about myself, some messed up stuff from childhood, but he got there very quickly and was able to kind of replace those thoughts with truth. Yeah, it was just, I think it was also the right time Mm. for me. And so I was coming with that approach of it's the right time for me. I'm ready for this. And it all just came together. How many sessions did you end up having with him? Do you remember? Only about six. Six. Okay. How old were you at this point? It was only a few years ago. Okay. So that was very powerful for you then. I like what you said about the timing. I remember when I was an intern at a hospital in Miami for my predoctoral psychology internship, and I worked in outpatient, the inpatient, as well as the adolescent residential facility. And I remember telling my group supervisor in the residential program about how optimistic, I mean, being a psychologist, you know, or actually a psychologist in training at that point, I was all gung-ho, like everyone can be changed, everyone can be reached, just have to have the, you know, the right word, the right thing to do. And I'll never forget his response. He responded and said, you know, I, I agree, I think everyone can be reached, but I think it's more about timing. Sometimes it's just the right time. And for you, it was just the right time. You don't even remember what he said, but definitely it was different than the dean. It was definitely different than the counselor or the crisis counselor over the phone. And so I'm glad you had that experience. Yeah, for a lot of it, I think throughout the journey, I didn't want to stop. And I know that there's an an assumption that people who self-injure do want to stop. But for a long time, it was my go-to. It was what was getting me through the day. It was what was helping me cope. And so for a lot of it, I didn't want to. And then there were other times where I would go to counseling because I thought I should. This is something I need to stop and I should stop. So I'll go to counseling. But I was just, yeah, I thought I should. You bring up a great point because that leads into my next question about recovery and how recovery is conceptualized differently for different people. What does recovery mean to you? Yeah, it is a very personal thing, I think, for each person. Recovery for me is a change in how I think of self-injury. So before when I was really in the middle of that journey, if something bad happened, anything, that was my go-to and it became almost automatic. And even the thought of knowing that I would later on in the day, that would make me feel better. And that was my only go-to. And it was almost a friend, a secret friend, I think recovery for me is because it was such a long journey and it did become so automatic, you know, anything that happens now, anything negative, anything that ruins my day, my brain will offer that as an option and say, hey, this worked in the past. You know, it works. It works fast. Here's an option. Before where I was really powerless to that thought, now I have power over it and I can dismiss that as just just a thought just an option. And I can dismiss it pretty quickly. That's amazing. I think that's really important for us to hear too, that those thoughts come. Yeah. And who knows, maybe they'll be there for the rest of your life. But for you, you're in a good spot. Yeah. Because your your relationship with your thoughts is different than before. Yeah, for sure. And that just because someone still has thoughts doesn't mean they haven't recovered or they're not in recovery, depending on, I guess, how they define it for themselves. So you mentioned being able to just see your thoughts as thoughts and move on 
and use a different coping strategy. Now that you have a number of them, it sounds like that might be a little bit less harmful to your body. What has been helpful for you in decreasing both the frequency in which you've self-injured and the need to actually self-injure to begin with? Yeah, I have been very intentional about mental health, mental well-being in general, and not just when things turn bad. So I will, I think I'll always kind of have a struggle with depression and anxiety, and I can better recognize when that is popping up. But for me, my focus is more on maintaining mental wellness all the time and being really intentional about that. And so I will make sure that I'm getting enough sleep, that I'm exercising, that I'm eating properly, that is setting my brain up to thrive and be in a really healthy space. That's great. That's been really helpful for you. Now, I wanted to shift our focus because at the beginning of this, I introduced you as a coach, a trainer, general spreader of hope and you've educated people on self-injury and done workshops. How have you used your experience in this journey of yours with self-injury really for the better? Yes, I love this part of what I do. Um, So when I was studying psychology at university, I kind of fell into lecturing as well. And so as a very, very shy person, this was quite a challenge, but I came to love it. And one of the lectures I did was on self-injury because it was an area I had studied. And then after a few years of doing this for second year psychology students, I really had this feeling that there are people in the community that also really need this information and these tools. And so I, I asked around and I ended up doing this workshop for a whole bunch of people who were counselors, social workers, teachers, first responders. And I did a two-hour workshop. And for the first time outside of an academic environment, I was able to share my own story. And so I I mixed together, I did half the workshop was on academic research theory, really helpful tips on kind of do's and don'ts, what's helpful. And then I also spent the next half telling my own story and those stories about the dean and, you know, counselors, what was helpful, what was really not helpful. And I allowed people to ask me questions. And so because I had been through that therapy, I was in a safe space and able to answer questions. And people have a lot of questions. So that's kind of the work I'm doing now. And I especially love talking to teachers and nurses, anyone that works with young people. What have been some of your favorite questions that people have posed? Sometimes when I'm in groups of counselors social workers, it can turn into a bit of a group therapy session when they'll ask about my childhood, my parents, my siblings, all sorts of things. One question that really got me once was thinking back to that story with the Dean and, you know, how badly that went. She asked me how I would have liked that Dean to respond now, looking back. And that one I had never even considered. So it was a really good question and it stuck with me. And what was your response? I knew you'd ask. I think empathy for one and 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 what you've always said, a respectful curiosity, making sure I knew I wasn't in trouble, I was cared for and letting me be part of the process, being transparent. How do you want to go about this? Who from your family can we tell? Letting me still have ownership and make decisions. But overall, a bit of empathy and listening. And what about the person on the phone? the crisis counselor, would you say the same thing? Yeah, I I feel like a lot of people think they know about self-injury and have these really strong beliefs, which affects how they treat people and what they say. And so for people kind of in that space, it's more about education, I think. Hmm. 
You mentioned the do's and don'ts. You've already shared a few, but are there more on that do's and don'ts list that you share during your presentations? Yeah, it depends who who the audience is. If it is, you know, staying in, in your lane, really, and seeking help, making sure you're part of a team. But it depends if it's teachers, if it's medical staff, if it's parents. I mean, the roles are all very different, but all very important. And so just staying in that lane and all the things from your podcasts, actually. I think it was Dr. Nancy Heath. Is that who did the one on with teachers? Yes. That is full of such good stuff for teachers. So might have taken a few things from that one. Yeah, I think that was episode 20. It's one of our most popular episodes and it's an excellent one. I think, she, yeah, she's very eloquent and has a lot of great insight. Yeah. Well, I know some school counselors listen to this and you've had experience with them. What might be a couple of do's and don'ts specifically that you could recommend to them while they're listening? For sure. Yeah, I have I have spoken a little bit with school counselors. Listen to the podcast with Dr. Nancy Heath for one. And it's it's all the things that you say. Have empathy, ask questions, let them be part of the process and be part of a team. I just stress that you never want to be the only person and let them make decisions about who they're going to tell, who's going to be part of this team to support you. Why do you think the dean responded with such anger and other people respond with less empathy? Like, what is it do you think that leads them to respond that way? I think it's the underlying beliefs about what self-injury is. You know, for that first dean, if she 100% believed I was an attention-seeking, annoying teenage girl, and that's how she responded to me. And she thought, if I'm attention-seeking, what will stop me is not getting attention. Mm. And so I think she believed she was doing good because she had misinformation. And do you think for others, even like parents, parents may be responding angry or what that might be about? I think being a parent is probably the toughest in this situation. I mean, watching someone you love hurt themselves on purpose and not being able to stop them. That's absolutely heartbreaking. And I think there are a lot of emotions that would go into how they respond. I'm thinking just this past weekend, my son, who is not quite two years old, and this past weekend, we were outside playing and he's just picking up everything right now. And there was some shattered glass and he reached down and me as his parent, I'm like, I don't want him to grab it because he's going to cut his little fingers. And so I was like, no. And I grabbed him just before he did. I mean, he was fine. He wasn't scared or anything for me in that. But for me, I felt that and it could have come across to him or to others that I was angry, but really it was more Mm -hmm. of a concern and fear. And I wonder if that's similar for parents to see and learn that their own child is self-injuring, that their go-to is does it be like, no, don't, but instead of coming across as concerned and empathic, it's you're doing something wrong, you're bad, this has got to stop, and less of an empathic response. Yeah, I think if it does come across as anger, I think underneath that is fear. I think, you know, as a parent, probably terrified because it can be very confronting as well if if you're seeing blood, if you're seeing injuries and it's your own child. Very, very confronting and very scary. I know that for yeah, my parents, we didn't talk about it at the time, but and we have a little bit since then. And I know that they were just terrified. They were not supported. They didn't know how to help. They didn't know if something they said would trigger me or if they should say something. So it's it's a very, very difficult place to be. In some of your advocacy work, you've actually walked through, if I understand correctly, with you've walked with some of these young people through the process of seeking support and help or navigating the, the mental health system and even the legal system in some cases. Can you share with us a little bit about what that was like for you as someone with lived experience of self-injury? 
Yeah, that that has been very, very interesting. And I feel like that's the last part of the circle or like I've got the academic, the personal, and now I've supported someone. So I really have it from all angles now. I had underestimated how terribly frustrating and difficult it would be to support someone, even though I'd been through it myself, watching someone keep doing it and wanting better for them is very, very hard and coming to accept that they may not stop now and they may not stop for years and being okay with that. I also, I think because of my lived experience, uh, could be extra pushy when it came to mental health appointments. And I, I really stood up for them if they were with, for example, with a GP who was saying things that were unhelpful or if in a family meeting, parents were saying unhelpful things. I felt like really, really pushed to give them a voice. And how did you do that? Like what would be some things that you would say in those moments? I have stopped a GP from talking when they were saying some really, really unhelpful things around suicide because it it would have been really damaging for my person to hear. I have also intervened in family meetings when I feel like unhelpful things are being said. For example, look at what you're doing to this family. Look at how upsetting you are to your siblings and just kind of redirecting them to more helpful plans. Yeah, I was wondering, like, I'm trying to imagine what I would say in that moment. Uh, I don't know if you even remember exactly what you might say in such a moment other than just redirecting and saying, hey, let's let's focus on the real issue here. Yeah, it's it's hard not to get a bit fired up and passionate in those moments. I save that for the drive home. But really, in those situations, I want the best for that young person. And I'll do whatever it takes to get that. I think about not only parents, but also some medical and mental health professionals who were talking about school leaders as well, getting angry. And yes, there might be some fear there. I wonder too, if it's their perception that it's their responsibility to get the person to stop the self-injury. And that's a frustrating point. Like I just said, none of us is very good at accomplishing the goals that other people have for us. And so for therapists and teachers and school counselors, maybe fearing that if a student continues to self-injure or an individual continues to self-injure, then it's on them. It's a reflection of them mm. or their failure as a leader in the school or as a parent or as a loved one, maybe in a relationship with someone and with the lived experience of self-injury. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, the failure is there and also potentially the frustration. I know, yeah, that I've felt it yeah. when people don't stop or they don't want to stop. And I know for me that I didn't want to stop for a long time. And if I did, what would I have had in, in its place? It was not a behavior that I could just stop because it was performing a function. That's how I coped. And I know for parents, their responses usually just, they just want their kid to stop, to stop doing it. But it's, it's usually not that simple. Earlier, you had mentioned that it was like a friend to you. And I've heard that before in my work as a psychologist working with teenagers. Can you describe a little bit more what you meant by that and what it was like to lose that friend? Yeah, or more to realize that it was never a friend in the first place. That's good. Yeah. For me, it was a comfort. It made me feel better. It was my secret thing. And so on the outside, I was high performing, high achieving. I was, you know, getting good grades. I was going to university. I was getting married. You know, I was doing all these things, which seemed great on the outside. But I had this secret friend so that I knew that if I had a bad day, if anything terrible happened, or if I just was feeling low, that friend would comfort me and make me feel better. And for me, it was always, it was a nighttime thing. It was a bit of a routine and it was just 
maybe almost meditative or mindful. It was just a process that I went through that I felt better. But I think, yeah, in coming to recovery, realizing that that was never a friend of mine. It was never helping me. It was never allowing me to feel what I needed to feel. And so I think it was more about that rather than losing a friend. That's powerful. Thank you. And you had a story about advocacy in one of your workshops. Um, So one of the workshops that I did was actually with a school. And at the time that they brought me in, it had actually got quite desperate. And so this was a school in New Zealand, we'd call it intermediate. So this is ages nine to about 11. So kids. And it got to a stage where self-injury was rife and they had banned pencil sharpeners, they'd banned scissors from the school. And the children were taking apart the fire alarms to get the glass out to cut themselves. So that's the kind of state that they were in. And so they asked me to come and talk to a combination. So it was teachers and parents and the school counselors. And it was probably one of the most powerful evenings I've been part of. And it was an absolute honor to bring together those three kind of parts of the support team. And there was a lot of emotion in the room. You know, there is when there are parents involved and it was such a dark time for the school. But we worked together and we went through the really practical steps of how to support people, what people's roles are. And I think what was important was bringing people together and saying, you know, you're all on the same team. You all want the best for these young people. And we're going to work together and allowing them to talk and sit in that space with each other was really really helpful for parents in particular being able to ask questions and for me to put myself back in my teenage mind and explain what it was like for me as a teenager from my journey and kind of explain that it wasn't my parents fault I didn't blame them they did nothing wrong for me that was helpful for them and I also read a letter that my mum has written recently about her experience parenting me through that time and how afraid she was, how little support she had. And so that was a really powerful night. And I think that kind of sums up how I work now. So taking that combination of the academic, but plus the personal experience and just use all those experiences I had where people may have stuffed up a bit so everyone can learn from it. And people can always ask questions. And I think that's maybe one of the most helpful parts. What were some of those practical next steps that you shared with everyone at that meeting? To keep talking to each other, because I think it can get a little bit separated between teachers and parents in particular. And so keep on the same page, keep communicating with each other. Parents, do what you can, seek support, talk to your children. You know, it's an ongoing conversation, not one conversation. And I know that in that school, if their own child was not involved in self-injury, they definitely knew someone who was. And so, yeah, all about communication, talking, talking. That's so interesting, ages 9 through 11. And we we just did an episode, two episodes ago, two months ago on self-injury in children under age 12. So that's very relevant. Yeah. You mentioned that your mom had written a letter and you had read it aloud to the parents in school staff. Would you be willing to share some excerpts with us? Yeah, for sure. I can read a couple of paragraphs. Uh, So just to recap, so I think I was 16 when my mum was first called by the school nurse. And so a couple of days after this, this is the time she was talking about. So she said, 
One day I was at my friend's place and a lot of kids were there. I looked over the balcony down to where Kirsty was sitting. She had her sleeves pushed up and I saw her arms cut. This was the first time I saw what my beautiful daughter in such obvious pain that she had to cut herself. I was devastated and shocked. If only she would let me help her. Her father and I wondered all the time what we had done wrong. What had we missed? What had we said that had not only hurt Kirsty but stopped her talking to us? Even sitting next to her, we were miles away from her. We had no one to talk to. We were living in a void. It was very painful and very frustrating. We felt blackmailed by fear. Our fear of losing her dominated our decision-making with anything Kirsty wanted to do. It was truly dreadful. Every day was filled with sorrow and fear. Every phone call caused us to panic. Was she all right? Had something happened? Thank you for sharing that. And thank you to your mother for writing that and allowing that to be read publicly. And I think that's a great segue into, I guess, our final questions that being your mother, your parents and what they were going through and knowing as I mean, you're a parent, I'm a parent, and there are parents listening to this, maybe in similar situation as your mom and your mom and dad, based on our conversation, what would you recommend to parents? Yeah, I think you can hear the hurt and the suffering in my mom's words. And I think for a parent, seek help for yourself as well. Seek support for yourself because you're going through something as well. Like we said before, it can be so incredibly difficult. And so seek help separately. Your child, your young person may be in therapy, may be in family counseling, but make sure you're looking after yourself as well. Great recommendation. I mean, an emotionally healthy parent typically makes for a better parent in those circumstances. Yeah. What would you recommend to other professionals, researchers, clinicians? There are a lot of assumptions, I think. Um, So... Educating yourself, staying up to date on the research, listening to amazing podcasts potentially, and just not making those assumptions. Ask questions, not you know assuming they've been abused or assuming they're suicidal. Just just ask and stay educated. That's great. I am always humbled and I'm always learning more. What would you recommend to other people with lived experience of self-injury, particularly adults who may still be engaging in the behavior? Yeah, for sure. It can be a long journey and it is a journey, ups and downs. For me, you know, I had given up on counseling and I would recommend not to, you know, in the end, it really worked for me. And I kind of see it now as a little bit like dating. Sometimes you have to see a few duds before you find the right one. (laughs) So persevere, you know, keep going, find the right person, find what helps for you. But it can be like it was for me, a really a long journey, but there is hope at the end of that. I'm very supportive of that recommendation as a psychologist that does therapy as well, because when I first meet families, I tell them at the outset, part of the purpose of this first appointment is just to make sure I'm a good fit. And I don't take it personally if I'm not. And if I'm not, I'm more than willing and happy to find someone that would be a better fit. So I think that's a fair question. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your personal story with us. I know you've shared it a lot at schools and in organizations in New Zealand. But now people all over the world have the privilege of hearing your story and hopefully feeling inspired and challenged at the same time. I am honored that you would choose to share your story on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much.
hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. Stay tuned for next month's episode as we explore the psychology of self-injury scarring. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow IPSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.